and she remembered that darkest day. Had it only been a day and a half or two since she had seen him coming up the hill, staggering, beaten so badly he was barely recognizable. She remembers thinking, I wonder how he can walk at all. There were deep gashes all over him, open wounds everywhere, and still he walked. From where I stood, I could hear the yelling and the mocking of the Roman soldiers in the crowd. I'm sure he heard it also, but as far as I could tell, he said nothing. He just kept walking. I remember so clearly the moment they reached the place of the skull, and he saw before him stuck in the ground the pillars upon, the cro upon which the crossbeam would be raised. Immediately, the soldiers began their gruesome work. The first thing they did was strip him of all of his clothing. My Lord, they had, they had stripped him of all of his clothing. I had heard that the Romans did that to bring the greatest shame upon those who were to be executed by the state. Complete humiliation and pain was their aim. The mocking grew louder as he stood there, and then they pushed him to the ground, and they took spikes and drove them into his wrists. How they found a place to put the spikes that was not already ripped and torn, I don't know, but still he was silent. How could he not cry out in pain? And then as they lifted him up onto the pillar, there must have been great agony as they were pulling and yanking the crossbeam up. But there he was in all of his ag agony and humiliation, and then they drove the spikes into his feet. I can still hear the sound of the mallet against the spike. It was interesting. A strange thing began to happen from the moment that they hung him up there. It must have been somewhere around noon, <coughs> and the darkness lasted until about 3 o'clock. It just kept growing darker and darker. I was actually thankful for the darkness because I could not bear to look upon him, my Lord. He who had cast out seven demons from me. Seven demons. There was hardly any of me left for the demons had complete control of me. And he spoke, and they were gone. He changed everything for me, but not for me alone. He had given sight to the blind man, the blind man who had been blind since birth. He had never seen a sunset, never seen a flower. And all of a sudden, he could see. The lame man had been healed also. He had been lame for so many years, and he had had to become a beggar, a beggar. And Jesus healed him. And then there was the centurion's beloved son. The centurion had come to him, and, and he knew that his son was dying, and he asked Jesus to heal him. And though the son was many miles away, Jesus had spoken, and the boy was healed. He had, he, he had fed the 5,000. He had calmed the sea. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet here he was hanging on the cross, and he never cried out about the injustice. He never defended himself. He never performed a miracle for himself. 
No, he did not do that for himself. I did hear this. I heard his voice. Oh, that voice. I will never forget it. Soft, kind, full of love. And he spoke to Mary, his mother. And he said this, Woman, behold your son. And then he slightly turned his head to John, his disciple, and he said, Behold your mother. Who does that in the midst of such agonizing pain and humiliation? But of course he did. He was loving his own to the very end. Sometime later, he cried out again and he said, I thirst, and they gave him a small amount of something to drink. I don't know, but I, I think that his cry of thirst was because of a much deeper thirst. It seemed like a longing thirst. And then the last words I heard were so sorrowful. He said, it is finished. That's all. And then he lowered his head. And I think at that moment he died. It is finished. That is what my heart felt also. It is finished. Our hope, our beloved Savior was dead. I could not stop the tears. I could not bear the emptiness. I did not know what life would mean now. That day at the cross, it seemed as if everything had died there. Then the crowd began to disperse. The centurion in charge came up to the soldiers who had been keeping watch over Jesus and the other men. And then the soldiers rose up and they went to one man and then the other on either side of Jesus and they broke their legs. It was horrible. The sounds were horrible. And then they came to Jesus and they talked among themselves, but they did not break Jesus's legs because he was already dead. However, they pierced his side, I guess, to make absolutely sure that he was dead. And still we stayed, the women and myself, we couldn't leave. We had to see what they would do with his body. And then two men arrived, spoke with the soldiers, and the soldiers took down my Lord's body and allowed the men to take him. We followed them and watched to see where they would place him. We didn't have to walk far. We walked into a nearby garden, and in it was a tomb. It looked like a brand-new tomb. It was really quite beautiful and oh, so silent. The men who had taken Jesus' body seemed to have some spices and linen cloths with them and they went into the tomb and were there for a time and then they came out and they rolled the stone in front of it. Well, we stood there and we felt helpless. You see, it was almost the Sabbath and we could do nothing but we so wanted to be the ones to finally prepare his body. But it would have to wait until the Sabbath day ended. We knew of no other way that we could possibly honor this one that we called Lord, that we thought was our king. So we decided we would meet at the tomb on the first day of the week. We didn't know at all how we were going to roll back the stone but we had to do something. And so we departed. 
but our hearts were left at the tomb. What if those were some of the thoughts that had been in Mary's mind as she walked to the tomb that early morning while it was still dark? You see, she had had this whole Sabbath time to remember, to think about Jesus, to all of the stories that she had heard about him, to remember the times that they had all been together and the joy and the hope that had been in the midst of them, of his words and his teachings, how powerful they had been. She had heard of all the miracles he had fulfilled and how he had healed and calmed the storm. And then she had heard him pray. His prayers were as if he were before the very face of God. And now she was returning to the tomb, the tomb that held the body of her Lord. The tomb that said, it is finished. Nothing made sense, and yet she went. It was as if she was being drawn there. I am sure that for Mary, the sorrow had not lessened as she had remembered all of these things and as she walked that day. And perhaps in the midst of all that remembering, the confusion had gone because of so many things Jesus had said that now, now they could not happen. But she went on. She kept walking. And then she gasped. The stone had been rolled back. Resurrection. It makes sense of everything. Of course, the disciples and the Marys and all who had known and loved Jesus, of course they were brought to their knees by the cross. The cross had it is finished written all over it. They saw death, they saw hopelessness, they saw a corpse. They experienced the deepest sorrow imaginable. Jesus had given them pictures of resurrection. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. And he had said at that time, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But beyond that, he had also spoken words to begin to prepare them. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again in a little while you will see me. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And he said, I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Resurrection defines the cross. Or perhaps it is better to say that it is through, that the cross is understood through the lens of the resurrection. And Mary didn't yet have that lens. I don't say that to diminish the power of the cross. The cross is the place where our sins were borne by Jesus. He took them in his body on the tree. He took our sins. And they were laid upon him. He became our scapegoat. Jesus bore the judgment for our sin. He made atonement. He was the unblemished lamb. He was the perfect lamb without sin. And yet he faced the wrath of God against sin. 
He lost the father's face for that moment and died on the cross. My friends, no wonder Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Because Jesus knew the hour had come. And Jesus knew what he was facing. You see, it wasn't the beating of the men or the mockings or even the horrific suffering of the crucifixion that Jesus feared. It was the drinking of the cup of God's wrath upon sin that was upon him now. And it was losing the face of his father. Jesus walked his whole earthly life in the shadow of that cross. It always loomed before him. And the moment came that would define every other moment in all of history, God the Son nailed to the cross. The one who smoked creation into being, hanging on that unspeakably shameful cross, beaten, bloodied, cursed and hated, humiliated, rejected of God. And there he died. The question is this, how did those watching make sense of that? How could they possibly see beauty or hope in the cross? How could the women who saw Jesus taken down from that cross and put in the tomb, how could they possibly make sense of his death? And then they saw a huge stone rolled in front of that, of that tomb. How could they understand? No wonder those who heard those words from Jesus that day, it is finished, no wonder they could not have understood what they meant. They could not understand the power and the freedom of those words which Jesus spoke. No wonder there was confusion and deepest sorrow. Jesus had paid it all for their sake, for your sake, for my sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness in God. However, my friends, if indeed it had ended at the cross, it would have been finished. It would have been over. The death of Jesus would have been futile. Can we say that? Can we say that? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of mo all people most to be pitied. But the resurrection did happen. The resurrection of Jesus is vindication that his sin offering was accepted by God. He, con he has conquered the last enemy, death. 
The resurrection is the coronation of Jesus as the messianic king. And in not many days from that resurrection, he will be seated on that throne at the right hand of God. God said, come forth, my beloved son. Jesus has been raised and our faith is not futile and we are not still in our sin. You see, the problem was at that moment, Mary wasn't looking for resurrection. She was looking for a dead body. Evidently, the disciples were not looking for the resurrection either because no one was at the tomb waiting on that third day. They were not looking for Jesus' resurrection. When Mary saw that stone rolled back, she ran to get Peter and John, and they came, and they looked into the tomb, and they saw it was empty, and then they went home. And Mary went back to that tomb, and she saw herself that the tomb was empty. Well, there was that one thing where there were two angels in the tomb dressed in white and they questioned her about why she was crying. But you see, Mary was so engulfed in her grief and so focused on finding the body of Jesus, she was missing the glory. She turned and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And surprisingly, amazingly, Mary supposed he was a gardener and said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, we don't know why Mary didn't recognize Jesus. Was it because in resurrection he looked so fresh and healthy and perfect? Or was it because she had been crying for so many days that she could not see clearly? Or was she supernaturally blind for a time? Or was she just not looking? No answer is given. But then that voice, that voice which called her by name, Mary, that was all it took. Sorrow, despair, emptiness gone. She fell before him and it seemed that she grabbed his feet. And Jesus says, no. No, don't cling to me now. I haven't gone to heaven. I haven't ascended yet. Mary, now is the time for exuberant celebration. The amazing thing is that Mary was given the honor, a woman, to be the first to see the resurrected Lord. And then he said to her, Go and tell my disciples. Go and tell my disciples he is risen. She was the first to carry that good news. There is so much we could say about Jesus' appearance to the disciples, but with so little time left, we're going to focus on his words, peace be with you. Spoken three times in these last verses and filled with so much meaning. The words that were spoken before Jesus gave the Great Commission and prepared them to go into the world with the message of the gospel as he breathed to remind them that the Spirit was coming. Why? Peace be with you. Of course, there are many reasons, but the main reason is resurrection. Peace with God has been restored. Think about it. 
Think about what that means. Sin destroys peace. It brings corruption of every kind, every kind. Nothing is left untouched. Sin leaves nothing untouched. But on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of sin by making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 20 to 22. And it goes on and says, And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that he may present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's resurrection. Sin touches everything. But in his death, Jesus met every condemnation. His perfect righteousness made him the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. He fulfilled the law's loud thunder with his perfect love because he perfectly loved the Father and he perfectly loved everyone. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He overcame darkness with light. He paid the full price of the debt against us by nailing it to the cross. He is the truth who has overcome the lies of Satan. He drank the cup of God's wrath to its final dregs, that cup which is called the cup of staggering, which contained God's full and furious wrath against sin, against your sin and my sin. The sword which blocked the way back to the tree of life was embedded into his side and the curtain ripped in two to welcome us back in. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus in his resurrection has overcome sin and death. It holds us no more. The resurrection is God's yes and amen to all Jesus did on the cross. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For first he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then Paul goes on, and he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A resurrection awaits us. And Jesus' resurrection gives us clues as to what it might be like. Jesus is the first fruits of what resurrection will be. And Paul says in Corinthians 4, 16 to 5, 5, he reminds us that we are living in the already and the not yet. And he wants us to see life now as preparing us for the glory to come, a glory beyond comparison. This is what it says 
Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not made by human hands. But meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul tells us so much in this passage, but one thing he is telling us is that life matters and life is hard, sometimes unbearably hard. However, he reminds us of a glorious and forever truth. What is coming far outweighs what is now. An eternal weight of glory. And we must fix our hearts and our minds not on what is seen, for that is temporal. The things we're suffering now, they're going to pass away. But on what is unseen, for that is eternal, and it'll never pass away. A resurrection awaits us. And Jesus' resurrection is the promise. Yes, we live in this earthly tent and we groan and we are burdened in all kinds of ways, physically and spiritually. Our outer man is wasting away, but we have an eternal house in heaven. We have a new resurrected body just awaiting us, a glory beyond comparison. And our new body will be perfectly fit for our inward glory. And even this day is preparing us for that day. And the Spirit is the deposit. It is certain. Our study in John helps us to see a little of what this means. When Jesus healed the blind man and the lame man, he was putting things back the way they ought to be. When he stilled the sea, he was bringing calm to the chaos. When he cast out the demons, he was putting them on notice that the king has come. On the cross, when Jesus suffered and died, Satan and his minions were celebrating their victory. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, he said it was Satan's great blunder. It was Satan's doom. Jesus was actually triumphing over him, and resurrection was his victory cry. But for now, we live in the already and the not yet. When Jesus entered that locked room on the first Sunday, he said, peace be with you. He said it three times, shalom. The unqualified, never-ending well-being of those who are in Christ. It is finished. We know the end, or better yet, the beginning. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus that day told the disciples that he was going to send them in his name and then he breathed to show that the Spirit is coming. We too have been sent 
and we have received the Spirit. The resurrection did happen, and we are to see all of life through that lens. He is risen. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15, remember, with these words, Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Does your labor seem in vain? Are you groaning? Are you burdened? Your work in the Lord is not in vain. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, was he flogged? It was done so that by his wounds we are healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was done so we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was done so that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothes? It was done so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was done so that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and counted among those who have done wrong? It was done so that we might be reckoned innocent and declared free from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was so that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at the last and that the most painful and disgraceful death? It was done so that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. You may not see it. It may not seem like it, but Jesus is ruling even now at the right hand of God. And he is at this moment, in this very day, destroying every rule and authority and power aligned against him. And someday, Maybe this day, that trumpet will sound and the clouds will be rolled back and Jesus will come and he will come in all of his glory and all of our sad things will come untrue for they were temporal. And we will see him as the one who paid it all and reigns as the risen king of glory. And on that day, he will raise us up and we will be with him forevermore.